Well, friends, we're back in Huntington Beach. Today was a funny day because we got in nice and early thinking that we were going to, you know, have parking. <laughs> make and it, there was make no it really parking. easy to find a spot, yeah. It's uh, the same day as the Huntington Beach Marathon. So we, we may see people going by, uh, coming back from the marathon. It's wrapping up in an hour or two, depending on how fast you are with the marathon. But it's nice to see everybody getting out there and getting healthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> lots of folks, uh, lots of folks. Uh, also on rollerblades, kind of trying to keep up with folks and other things. It's g- good times. But we are, um, as much as that's a, that's a real fun morning, we're, we're talking about something pretty, pretty hardcore, which is breaking stuff. Jesus tells us on occasion that we should break stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, of course, is in, in our whole series of titles really intended to make you think, saying, well, normally you'd think that, you know, folks in church are going to give me lessons from Jesus that sound like very good conventional wisdom. And breaking stuff does not seem like good conventional wisdom. That's usually, you know, certainly when we were in high school youth group, when when something broke, that was a bad thing. <laughs> you don't want to break anything at church. So what do we mean by this, baby? Yeah, so we're we're referring here specifically to John chapter 2. And this is when Jesus comes uh, over to the, the, the temple. And so I'll just go ahead and read here where we're at, starting with verse 13. Again, John chapter 2, verse 13. And we're going to go through to verse 25. As the Jewish Passover feast was drawing near, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he came across those who were selling cattle, sheep, and doves, as well as the money changers sitting at their tables. So he wove together cords to make a whip. And he drove them all out of the temple, along with the sheep and the cattle. And he spilled out the money changers' coins and overturned their tables. And he told those who were peddling doves, get this stuff out of here. Don't turn my father's house into a place of business. At that point, his disciples remembered what had been written. I will become consumed by zeal for your house. So the religious authorities responded to him saying, what sign can you show us that you have a right to do all this? And Jesus answered them saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it back up. So the religious authorities then said, this temple took 46 years to build, but you say you can rebuild it in just three days? But he was talking about the temple of his body. So later when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and this caused them to believe the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken during his stay in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, many believed in his name, witnessing the signs that he was doing. Yet for his part, Jesus didn't entrust himself to them since he understood who they all were. He didn't need anyone to teach him about human nature. He knew all too well what lurked within the human heart. (laughs) That's a little sad ending there. (laughs) But I guess this whole kind of, this whole thing, like the, the, the main point here that, is is that you know we, we want to f- focus on is the fact that when you're equipped with the truth, Jesus demonstrates that we don't need to be in fear of the corruption or the the corrupt religious leaders that we come across, or in fear of the ramifications of what it's going to look like. Right, and organization. Well, we yeah, so it. we're we're free to stir things up uh, when the corruption happens to be getting in in the way of the well being of the community and also the people that are in it. And the primary mission ostensibly right. of what this thing is supposed to be about in the first place. And we're actually we're actually called to be actively subversive when we see this mainly to stop to stop the corruption, stop the harm, stop whatever it is that is is happening that is not uh you know healthy in that religious community and certainly not the way that God is teaching us. Mm. It's amazing because I think one of the key motivations that many people feel within within organizations of any kind, but certainly families and religious communities, is this motivation to not rock the boat. Yeah. So that even when you know you're right, and even when everybody else knows that you're right about something, that's, of course, not the way to do that. And maybe that person's not, you know, fulfilling their role perfectly. But the worst thing you can do isn't screw up in your role within an organization. It's to challenge whether or not this thing is so healthy or so unhealthy that some stuff needs to get smashed. Right. And there's a lot of reasons that we do that. You know, one of the reasons sometimes that we will some, you know, be be tempted at least to not rock the boat. I mean, obviously it could be that we think that it's getting, it's going to get in the way of the good that is happening. That maybe this is just a small little, you know, portion of it that isn't so great, but that overall our mission is good. We're helping people and we're afraid 
to sort of, you know, stop that from happening by, Mm -hmm. you know, basically from bad press or, you know, whatever we end up doing or the leaders have to get dismissed and then they can't lead, Mm -hmm. you know, the vision that they created, right, for the organization. And it's happened all over the place. This is not just a church thing. You know, the Boy Scouts had a scandal and you might think, well, the, the Boy Scouts have been so influential in my life or the life of my children or the life of our friends and community that there's this this one problem over here, but we don't want this problem to uh, to create any kind of bad press for this other good thing. And mm-hmm. so we, we kind of back off it, uh, f- failing to recognize that, in a sense, if you let that sort of thing uh, fester for too long, it could mean the end of the Boy Scouts or your you know, little league well, and then team that, or whatever. That's another point, too, is often when you aren't willing to call out uh, the parts that aren't healthy, the parts that are, especially if it's illegal, but all of that will just backfire. You know, you think that the, maybe the good can still happen. Somehow, inevitably, it gets leaked out. We'll cross our fingers, hope this blows <laughs> over. Yes, and people, but unfortunately, that's not how it works. Mm. And And then it usually, because you let it go on, it becomes even more harmful to the good message because now it's like you... Al- you allowed this. Now it somehow infects the actual mission of what you were doing as something that is still part of the corruption. And forever in the back of people's minds mm-hmm. is the idea that even if something were amiss, you let this happen. We can't. Yeah, we can't trust even you know the leadership who otherwise means well to be on on the ball, mm-hmm. right? So there's the people that might do something naughty, like they might steal from the you know the the, the benevolence fund. They might embezzle. Then there's people that let that happen, mm-hmm. and I think it's the letting it happen that is terribly destructive Damaging, yeah. because it takes away the legitimate trustworthiness and the integrity of the group. Absolutely. One thing that kind of comes to mind, you know, sometimes I don't know if you ever in your family at all or whatever, but maybe you know, at least you would understand in theory this idea that sometimes maybe there's that that perhaps that creepy uncle character or something yep. you know not every you know not, not we, we laugh because it, it's but, uncomfortable but it is uncomfortable yeah. and and it's one of those things that you know sometimes even you know we'll be willing to brush aside sort of that person that might be a little creepy because you just don't want to deal with much. it you don't want to yeah maybe yeah he's super somebody. bowl party gets a little crazy mm-hmm. when he gets a little crazy drinking he says some things he shouldn't say he's probably not a problem but it's making everybody uncomfortable so you might Let's envision just let it yeah, so you might envision even, you know, if you bring in a friend to this event, just being like, okay, this person's going to get a little crazy, but just, you know, just, he'll, you know, just that's just John or whatever. I don't we'll want to put a name John. to it, but <laughs> that's just who he is, yeah. right? And and nobody ever wants to basically say this is not an environment where this happens. And when someone does, it's very often the case that the person who said, you know, this is uncomfortable gets the weight of the negative emotion from the rest of the family. Right, I mean, right. it's a natural thing. It's a very tragic thing. Absolutely. And it's all too common. Yeah. I think one of the other, one of the other things is that, that comes up in this whole section too, isn't just that it's not just that the selling, the, the, there's an aspect of the business of church, right? Yeah. That is an aspect. <laughs> I mean, there's, I think, I think it was at Harvard that they had a theology professor um, in the business department, you know, what's the business of church? Mm-hmm. And uh, ever since the Puritans kind of, I think, arguably sanctified commerce in a way that almost made it that if you were making more money as an individual or as an organization, that was a sign of God's favor. Mm. That kind of became an acceptable way of thinking that church is a if business. If you're prosperous, mm-hmm. then you, yeah, you've gotten the blessing of God. Later in the, in like the 19th century, the revivalists um, of the, you know, of the late 19th century started to say, Hey, let's, let's apply some of these marketing techniques. They did this also early in the 20th century with folks like, uh, you know, Billy Sunday, who used to be a baseball player. Hey, let's use all of the marketing techniques that we would use for getting people out to a ball game. And let's use that to get people out to hear the gospel. And the idea was, why wouldn't you do that if these psychological and sociological techniques work and we want to save souls? Well, let's, let's use these business models to save souls. Mm -hmm. And so it has a certain logic to it. What ends up happening, however, is that business model starts to dominate things, that the metric of success becomes 
the same metric that a business would have, and that's where things get really, really dangerous. Because honestly, if you look at the temple and Jesus cleansing the temple, somebody might argue, hey, we got to keep the temple going, Mm -hmm. right? So isn't the temple the thing that's the most important? It took 46 years to build this thing. we got to keep it up. (laughs) And if it's so important, why shouldn't we make money? And in many ways, I'm very sympathetic to this. Stacey and I, when we were traveling throughout Europe, one of the great things to be able to do was to go to churches on the countryside and, you know, put a couple, you know, coins in a little box, but be able to do some historical research, you know, who, what families had been here and just even to, to walk around the graveyard and see the, the names and so forth and kind of get, get some sense of what's going on. So there's a, there's a value in keeping those places open, even though maybe only 15 people show up on a Sunday to go to church. Mm-hmm. I understand you need to have a little gift shop and so forth. But when that becomes the thing, right. as it does in many places, I, I think China was a great example. When we would go to religious sites like the Temple of Guanyin in, in Foshan, by the communist government calling it a, like a tourist site, it kind of made it so that the religious element was degraded, mm. and I think on purpose. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think the um, I think the Chinese government is able to allow these things to exist underneath its care, and um, and seeing these temples as cultural artifacts right. that are of course silly allows them to be interesting, and and you can have the tourists coming in. But the idea that this is a place of reverence and worship that it becomes difficult because there's other people there taking pictures with the camera right but you in the staff though you could see in in a lot of them that they definitely recognized it more as a place of you know reverence and And they were frustrated by all the foreigners coming in i mean they probably went to this thing maybe they took the job because they cared about it Mm -hmm. but it could it could be that it could be I think the same thing was true even with some of the church services where we went um, in in the in, in Shenzhen, mm-hmm. for instance. They have an English-speaking congregation, and so they're allowed to operate relatively like, like a church, uh, but they have government officials in the back mm-hmm. watching it. And so, and so there's this um, there's this way of sub, you know subjugating religion. One, one last one in China. I'm not picking on China. It's just kind of interesting um, in China. You, it is illegal to reincarnate without government approval. Do you know what this has to do with? <laughs> no, is the Dalai Lama. So, oh. <laughs> so the Dalai Lama in in Tibet is a is a religious, but also a political role. And so, by saying sure, you can have you can have your reincarnation, but the government gets to decide on whether you reincarnate, um, is an interesting move, but one that actually has a great deal of importance. And that doesn't sound like it connects with the Bible. It does. Mm -hmm. The reason it connects with the Bible here, or this text, is that what's going on will be misunderstood if we don't understand the historical context of it. Right. That is, that is, it's not just that people are being naughty and they're, they're maybe taking a little money on the side or maybe they should have been more pure, you know, or uh, more holy in the way they were acting out in a normally good way. No, in many ways, Jesus is saying this whole system is sinful. It's not just the individuals. It's the whole thing is sick to the core. And it is not just sick. It's tied in with false powers. Mm-hmm. Rome, uh, the the Herod who is put in place and is subservient to Rome, just like the, you know, just like reincarnating would be subservient to to the state in Beijing. Well, now in 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 Rome, you you couldn't you can't be a messiah unless <laughs> unless Caesar says it's okay mm-hmm. to be a messiah. And the high priest is going to be one of four families that Herod, in consultation with the Roman governor, can can put in power. And so part of the problem here isn't just that they're getting too much money. It's that the whole system is rigged so that they can get money and so that they can get money in a way that's going to be compatible with the values of a foreign power, in this case, Rome. Right. Well, and I, and I think that to that point about it being, you know, bigger, that's why I was even saying about there's the aspect of business, but it is so much bigger than that's just one layer. In Mark, it refers to that, that Jesus says you've turned the temple into a, a den of robbers. And that refers back to uh, Jeremiah chapter seven. Uh, I'll start with. Yeah. Read this one. This is important. Yeah. So. Let me see where... By the way, she's looking this up. Mark, the reason 
we didn't use a Mark text is because there's some other things at the end of this passage that we use from John that we really wanted to bring into it. But in many ways, this this piece with Mark is really powerful because the idea of the den of robbers really is the is the key, as Stacy's going to show us, is the key to what really is at stake when Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple. He's not just really even cleansing the temple in a sense, because if you say he's cleansing the temple, that means that there's just a little scrubbing that needs to be done. No, he's smashing stuff up because he is he is demonstrating in a way uh, that he's almost bringing a condemnation on the temple and, and prefiguring what's going to happen later in 70 AD, which is the, the temple is going to be destroyed. This is not anti-Semitism at all. This is actually the reverse in many ways. Some people think it's anti-Semitism because Jesus is against, you know, um, the religious leaders that are Jewish. Um, I think Jesus would say they're not sufficiently Jewish because they are really uh, being puppeteered by Pilate, who's not even a bad, that terrible of a guy himself, but he is the puppet master that is serving the overall interest of the Roman Empire, not the people of God. Right. So in chapter, uh, again, Jeremiah chapter seven, verse nine, it says, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place of Shiloh, where I first made a dwelling for my name, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Will you, while you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I did to Shiloh what I will do to this house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Israel. Ephraim. Anyway, I'll stop there. That yeah. goes all the way through to verse 15. And then later on, that's where he goes to that really important passage for us, where he says, also on the side of this, you are sacrificing your children to a false deity in the valley, mm-hmm. and and that's going to be this idea of Gehenna, this place where, where all these, these corpses are going to be burned, because you thought that that was going to be acceptable. and what's I didn't really, even think of telling you not yeah. to do that. Like, I didn't even know it would go, get that bad. Do I have to list off all the horrific things that you ought not do? Do mm-hmm. I have to go that far? Like, you know, but, but it, it's all part of the same thing. Right. Molech, the takeover of the true religion by a false power. By a, it's a hostile takeover. Now, go, go back, Stacey. What struck you about that idea of the den of thieves or the den of robbers? Well, yeah, it's, the, it's, it's that idea where... The den is the place where you come home to. And so they're going about their their business of doing all of these bad things and then coming back into the temple and using it as a safe harbor or safe place. It's like the creature canteen. <laughs> yes. It's like, you know, when we were we were talking about in a previous episode of the podcast how we we found that we were relatively safe when we were at the the truck stop, because even though everybody there kind of seemed a little sketchy, not everybody, there was wonderful people, <laughs> but there were also people that were sketchy, but they weren't there to do their crimes. They were there to kind of count their money from the crimes or to, mm-hmm. you know, trade, you know, trade off, you know, money and drugs and stolen goods or whatever. I mean, in a lot of the places we saw, right. but it was the kind of the den of robbers in yeah. many ways, the den right. of robbers. And and this is really important because, it, yeah. It reminds me of, you know, when, if you go about your week and if, if you really don't understand that this, this message that Jesus is talking about is life changing, you, th- you know, it's that attitude of sort of you're, you go about your week doing all this unethical behavior, yeah. hurting people, whether you actually, you know, see it done or are physically doing it or just through numbers and paperwork and taking advantage of people. And then you, you kind of sort of make yourself feel better by going to church on Sunday. That's not, and that, that, that's sort of that where, oh yeah, you know, we're, we go to this safe place and, and I, you know, I'm going to be forgiven now. Of course, it doesn't mean that people aren't forgiven for their bad behavior. But if you know that you were going to go about just doing these terrible things to people or, mm. you know, ha- having this total corruption and then just using God's house is the place where you, again, take refuge or, or get a little peace for a second or, or 
dwell so that people can't catch you. <laughs> or you become you know? untouchable. Yeah. I mean, no, come on, look. This is a really tricky business in Christianity because we say, look, every every one of us is imperfect. Every one of us has growth. Uh, every one of us is is corrupt. Okay, I'll take that. That's a that's a, a generally that's universally Christian statement. Unless you're a Pelagian and Pelagians are heretics in the in the early church, right? That's the uh, that's standard. But this idea that there is a safe haven for people who are unrepentant exploiters, that's a different situation. So the idea that maybe you try really hard this week to not have another drink, but you did have another drink. And when you had another drink, you were angry. And you weren't a good father, say. Mm-hmm. When you come back on a Sunday, say you go to church and you hear that you're forgiven, this is giving you... Um, this 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 sense of an ability to reset and to say I'm still going to struggle through this. I'm still going to fight to be a better a better father. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fight not to be doing the drinking. Or, you know, if you if you have a, like if you just have a problem with uh, your your temper, right? Not not in a in a violent way, say, but maybe you just like you just you you want to be nicer. You want to not lose your cool, but it's hard for you, or you just have a hard time with willpower, right? These are different things, and uh, and of course. All of it is forgivable in terms of Christian theology. What Jesus would teach is, is all of these folks are forgivable. But what's not okay is to say, well, the kingdom of God includes this bold wickedness, right. this bold injustice. And there's and, some you know, good apples, maybe some bad apples. And, and yes, maybe that's the case. We're all sinners, so some of us can be you know, pimps and some of us can be defrauding poor old ladies. No, this needs to stop. Right. And when when the church becomes seen as the the umbrella or the cover for people who are going to continue in their wickedness, then this is a this is a horrifying problem. Certainly Paul would say this. And poor poor American Christians and evangelicals, I think, often read things like what later St. Paul will say and say, "Oh, this this is not the kingdom of God and that's not the kingdom of God and this is not the kingdom of God." And they think, "Well, I kind of do some of those things, so I guess I'm not saved. I'm going to hell. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that's not the character of what we're up to. Right. That's not that's not what we're going to do. Let me give you, I think, a great example is Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, we've talked about it before on the show, it's misused, but here's a place where it's important to use it. He says, you know, if, if somebody's doing something, you're saying that's that's not okay. Let's assume that, let's assume that um, somebody in your church is running a business where they are um, where they're exploiting poor people who need payday loans, mm-hmm. okay? And time after time, people in the community, in the same church that you go to, are having their lives ruined by somebody else in your church and community that is doing something that is blatantly a bad practice, okay? Mm-hmm. I don't know the whole deal with payday loans, but I'm saying, let's say there's a real corrupt payday loan place down the road from your church. You've got some poor people in your church that are suffering through this, and you've got this other person who says, hey, I'm forgiven. And then they keep exploiting the next week. I'm forgiven. This isn't a matter of willpower or right. the limitations on the forgiveness that is that is this possible. This is just trying to justify your terrible behavior, thinking that if you say the right words, the magic words. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, oh, sorry. That... We've got these people in our lives. Hey, sorry. I'm but but let's, let's go to this with Matthew 18. Jesus says, you go to that person privately and say, listen, I, I really think this, this is not okay. This, this is harming people. And if he doesn't listen to you, maybe bring a couple other people from the church and say, listen, you know, we really love that you want to be a part of our com- conversation. We, we want you to be part of this church. But what you're doing in this community is cruel and, and, and devastating to families that we know. We, we really think that you should repent of this. And then uh, this person doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. Then the whole church gets together and says, listen, I mean, this is where excommunication is a pretty handy tool. You say, this is devastating to our community. We need you to knock this off. And they still won't listen to the church. What does Jesus say? He says, at that point, you should treat them like they are a tax collector. Right. Now, what's going on with the tax collector? When you're in Sunday school, you think, oh, the tax collector is just somebody who's maybe taking a little too much, maybe cheating on their taxes a little bit. And that makes you think, Oh, well, you know, I, I don't report everything on my taxes or I, you know, I shave a little bit off here or there. So, you know, we're all 
breaking the law like that. We're all maybe going 57 in a 55 speed zone. This is not what was going on. What was going on is the tax collector was really not just one of the worst people in terms of what other folks thought, right? If you were the average peasant and you saw a tax collector, you'd say, well, I don't like that guy. Uh, it wasn't just that they, they were uh, not liked. They really shouldn't have been liked in the sense that what they were doing is, is, was gangster, right? Mm-hmm. It, it is like basically think about the mafia in New York, Philadelphia, where you have small business people getting shaken down by uh, racketeering, by a, a crime boss who then has lieutenants and then people that are out in the street and they're trying to get protection money from people. They're essentially taxing all of the businesses that are in the controlled area of the gang, right? And what the, the tax collectors were called the publicani, the publicani, the publicans. And what they did was Rome had this, this vast empire and it wanted to collect from the provinces taxes. And eventually, by this point, people in Rome aren't paying taxes. They're farming taxes. So you'd go conquer regions, and you would have an explanation. You'd have a very legitimate reason, you thought, why you'd be there. In fact, interestingly, the reason the Romans were in Palestine was because they, during the time of the Maccabees, had kind of come alongside them, and uh, they had a treaty so that they could they could fight against the Hellenistic um, reign of the Seleucids. So this other this other kingdom, they were able to push out because they didn't want to have Zeus temple in the temple temple, and uh, and the Romans became their pals. Now the Romans are all of a sudden exerting too much power, and one of the things that they're doing is they're hiring local people to to bid. Or what they don't they don't really hire them. What was happening is people would bid on the right to collect taxes. And you'd get a census. That's why we, you know, the whole story starts out, Jesus is born in Bethlehem because he's going for a census. Why did you have a census? Because the man, Babylon, <laughs> Molech, wanted to find out how many people were in town so that you could know what you could reasonably extort, you know, or you know how, how much you could for taxes, get, get yeah. out of them, right? Now, let's say I'm in this region and I say... Um, you know, I'll, I'll bid 1.2 million, and somebody else comes along and says, "I'll I'll do 1.3," and I go, "Ah, no, nope, I'll do 1.5." I would then commit to paying Rome 1.5 million so that they could uh, they would give me that contract. Mm-hmm. Now I knew that all I had to do to rega- re- regain that money was to go out and start collecting taxes, and then I could get my 1.5 back. Rome's happy because it doesn't have to worry. And it can budget. It knows exactly how much money it's going to get because it has the publicani all around the empire. They're going to know what they're what they're able to go ex- extract. Now, I go in. If I stretch it, if I press you as hard as I possibly can, every extra dollar that I... They don't have dollars, right? But every extra uh, bit of money that I'm getting out of the average person is going to line my pockets. So now I'm able to get, you know, half a million or, or, or a whole million in... I am. Uh, uh, I'm now going to get rich mm-hmm. off of the blood, sweat, and tears of the average person. People. So it was really. It was not just a person who had bad willpower, or maybe they cussed, or maybe they drank too much, or maybe maybe they smoked cigarettes and they didn't have cigarettes. But you know what I'm saying? They did these little peccadillos, these little sins. No, it wasn't that. They represented not just their own sin, but the sin of the entire corrupt system mm-hmm. of money. And it was killing people. And not only was it killing people, and this is the key, it then was influencing the people who eventually refused to hear Jesus. We're going to talk in a future chapter about the sin against the Holy Spirit. But to preview that, the sin against the Holy Spirit has to do with the high priests and the others that were religious leaders saying the reason they didn't want to support Jesus in his politically dangerous teachings was because he threatened the very pipeline of money. The same way later on, Luther, Martin Luther isn't in trouble for saying that the church had accumulated too much wealth. People had said that before. Uh, Savonarola was a reformer who said, this is sick. The, the Borgia Pope, Alexander VI, is corrupt and he's taken too much money. 
What Luther does later that's so devastating is he says, not only are you selling salvation, which is bad, Mm -hmm. you don't have the theoretical right to do it. You don't have the theoretical power. In other words, you aren't just stealing money for selling salvation. You don't have salvation to sell. You don't own God. You don't have a trademark on salvation. You don't have a copyright on the Bible. So in other words, by Luther basically having a theological shift, then all the money is is going to dry up as it is shifting shifting over to Rome. Well, going back, this is what Jesus was also threatening to do. By, by, by smashing up the tables of the money changers, he wasn't just saying you should be scrupulous in the selling of oxen and, and doves. He's saying this whole racket mm-hmm. is, is a racket. Doing, you're doing this in the temple or mm-hmm. near or outside of it, I guess, just outside the temple, but it's, it's connected with the temple. And you're so it's, and it's the temple's endorsing evil, right? And, it's, and so it's stop that <laughs> you yeah, can't do that. It. And more than just stop it, like it, yeah. it, he literally caused a disruption in the whole scene. And so basically, we we seen here. Like, so Jesus comes in. If you remember, sort of our first thing. Our, our, sorry, our, in our first chapter, Jesus comes in with an authority, an authority that he has. That is is he. He's not worried about the religious leaders. He he comes with a boldness. He knows what's going on here, mm-hmm. and he stops it. Even at the threat of causing a scene, even at the yeah. threat of totally upsetting the other leaders. In fact, they come and say, "Okay, well, what authority do you do this?" You know, and, and then they try to tempt them to like, do a miracle here. You know, to prove that. Mm-hmm. And, and and notice that Jesus didn't need to prove to them, you know, that he had that authority. He didn't perform the miracle. He said that he was going to raise the a temple, the th- temple in three days. Right. And that would, that's where he referred to that he himself, that Jesus is the temple. Right. And it's bigger than just this building. It's bigger than this institution. And in fact, it's not the building and not the, not the institution. Yeah. You can, your community can be a gracious community where that is lived out, but don't get it confused with being the place that it's a building. The community and the people are what matters and protecting those people are what matters. And it, and you don't want to just assume that because you are in a place of worship or something connected to a certain religion that you know has mostly positive things, you don't want to let your guard down and not discern. You want to yeah. keep your eyes open, your wits about you, and question the people when you need to. Just because something is called a holy place doesn't mean it's a holy place. Right. And in fact, sometimes because it's called a holy place, people then kind of with nefarious intent and certainly bad uh, bad acting can find a way to use that as cover. I mean, think about how many times I really love when people find, you know, find religion in prison. Mm-hmm. But there is this phenomenon where people will say, well, you know, hey, I've, I found God, so now, you know, don't don't pay attention to this other stuff that's going on, mm-hmm. these other bad deeds, and that's dangerous. Now look at this though, lest you think that we're that we're stingy with grace. It's not it at all. The whole point, point the whole point. <laughs> Jesus goes in, he smashes up the temple. He, he says, "Don't like these these practices." The, he says in Matthew eighteen that the one thing that you sh- you know the way you should treat somebody who's unrepentant is to treat them like a, a tax collector. How do you treat a tax collector? You don't trust them. Right. You don't abide them. Right. And we talked about that, uh, the episode in Just War Theory. What did we say? The same thing, Matthew 18. Yeah. We mentioned about how you, you, well, and actually Jesus also spent his time often around the tax collectors. What, yes, this and, is the, yeah. And not because they were part of, you know, the the loving family of, of yep. God. It was, it it was that if he could win them over, right? He if, could change the whole system. Exactly. Yeah, so that's it. I mean... But it's not... The, these clearly aren't people that are part of the community. They need... He still needs to, you know, be there and, and try to help them see their ways and help them bring them along, right? We care about tax collectors and prostitutes for different reasons in the church. We don't shun them because they're, like, we're un- uncomfortable. You know, think about both of these characters, uh, both of these professions, the tax collector and the prostitute. In, in, in many ways, both of these people are um, kind of victims of the system mm-hmm. that everybody tolerates, right? So everybody's tolerating Rome's 
incursion. Everyone's tolerating what's going on at the temple. It makes everything easy. There's not going to be any revolution. There's, you know, everybody's, we got roads and sanitation or whatever. And the thing with prostitution is you don't have prostitutes unless there's dudes going out and paying for sex. Mm-hmm. So the prostitute becomes the, the focus of the shame. But the shame is the community's shame that there are people that are poor in a situation that are going to have to resort to this. And that there's people that are going to exploit, in this case, usually women. Mm-hmm. right? But for, for both, Jesus holds out that these are the people he's coming to. Mm-hmm. These are the sick people. Mm-hmm. But to say that that's not a sickness to say that we're 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 just going to we're just going to say sorry every sunday and then go back to our exploitation is not it's it's not there the the whole of the the new testament look at it i mean jesus yep. jesus keeps seeing these people come to faith but when they come to faith they they end up stopping their job they give up on their job right mm-hmm. whether it's it's matthew or right what, you know so there's a there's a repentance there and again remember like re- let's remind everybody what repentance is sometimes people it, it's a whole new way of seeing things yeah right. the, the the world has it's it's not just oh what i did was bad no mm-hmm. it's that you see the world in a whole different light and you turn whole- around you turn away from the way you were going into a different way you still have your impulses you still have your bad moments not about that but you don't keep going down that route you don't keep becoming a you know a baby torturer or a slave owner or whatever you know that Mm -hmm. sort of thing Mm -hmm. one of the things i just want to kind of wrap up a little bit before we take a question but just basically uh for in our daily lives if we see some things that are going on just some five brief points here uh you know how do we approach when when we need to call out, say, our religious leaders or, yeah. or somebody in our community that it's, it's unhealthy. And I, I would say the first point that we want to make sure is that you would notify the, the proper authorities. So, for instance, if it is an illegal event, I think you want to go ahead and probably <laughs> include the police right away. Uh, if it's And not worry <laughs> one bit about whether or not it's going to have a financial impact on the bottom line for the church or the baseball club or whatever. Right. And... and one of the things that's important about that too is, yeah, not the not only just the financial impact, but don't we're, like, if your religious leaders are trying to say you didn't go through the proper authorities when they're not doing anything about the problems. I mean, perhaps you you know bring it to the attention of your religious leaders, but when they don't act, then you you need to keep going above them or you know who, however you need to. And like I said, if it's the law, then the law enforcement. <laughs> You right. know, is needed. Don't you don't ever waste time over um, how how wrong or how you didn't tell people the right people or go through the right channels, right? Right. Um, the other part would be always you want to put the well being of the people over the institution, and that's kind of what you were mentioning. It, it reminds me of um, some the example of even like with uh, Bikram Yoga. Mm-hmm. There were people that in order to to have a, a Bikram studio. You have to go through the training of it. And so people have invested a lot of money in having their yeah. studios and stuff. And they would be afraid of any negative press against Bikram because it might affect the attendance at their studio. I feel terrible for them. They right. spent all this money. They had to deal with some guy cussing at them. And now they've got their their dream as a little a little yoga studio in Long Beach or something. I don't know if there's one in Long Beach, right? Mm-hmm. And now... Because this guy does something stupid, you're in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this happens all the time. Right. And so some people chose to find ways of like just labeling it hot yoga or things like that, you know, right. to get around it. But it's important that even if you're something that you might, you know, even financially be sacrificing yourself, that you don't let that stop you from stopping the corruption. Another point would be, uh, you know, don't ever focus on how the people complain. They might do it wrong. They might do it out of anger. They might have, you know, just could this be this emotional outburst, right? Mm-hmm. But the focus isn't how they told or complained. The focus is on what is that behavior that's happening that is damaging the community or people. That's incredibly important here because the reason we really liked to have, you know, this this story up front in our in our book with the early chapters is that 
very often this stuff is disruptive. This very conversation is disruptive. People going through already, people going through it, they're realizing, man, this is disruptive to my own life in the sense that now I might have to rethink the way I'm engaged with church and my own my own career. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's the nature of it. Jesus does not really care. Jesus faces death himself. Jesus is also facing the reality that he is disrupting the business of the, the temple. Mm-hmm. Um, the fourth point I'd like to bring up is that um, you never pressure the person that is harmed uh, to forgive right away. <laughs> that yeah. We've mentioned that in another episode on forgiveness. You can look into that further about some of the, the trauma that can happen with that. But it's important that you don't just cover up things by like, okay, we'll forgi- forgive and forget. Um, right. And some people want to very quickly sweep something under the rug so that they can keep going on as business as usual. We rejoice when somebody gives up their exploitative behavior, but we don't just, and, you know, just but it's not turn a, a blind eye to the things that are continually going on. But it's on. also up to the victim if and when they're ready to forgive. It's yeah. not about... Right, right. So the community, the com- the community could say, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna bring you into this group of where we're gonna hear a new way of being." But that doesn't mean that we have to force other people who have lost Been their traumatized, harm, uh, yeah. lost their homes and their farms and stuff, to say, "Hey, why don't you go be pals with that person?" Like that's a yeah. that's a big move, it's, and that's not necessarily something for right. the community to force on victims of uh, it's not their, bad guys. It's it's on the individual person. So number five, just to wrap up this little section here is that if you're a part of a community that wants to blame the victims and ends up basically retaliating against the, the whistleblowers, especially that is not a place that you want to be a part of. In fact, head out the door and <laughs> shake the dust off your feet mm-hmm. and, and find another community because yeah. there, that, there's some big corruption going on there. That's how you know who to side with. If you want to side with Jesus, you're going to side with the guy who gets arrested. You want to side with the guy who is shamed by the religious leaders, not applauded necessarily by the religious leaders. That's the hard part of all and this. And you said arrested. How? Arrested because they were calling out things that, that, that they, if they themselves, for instance, even Jesus was crucified, right? That, they, yeah. that most of all of his um, disciples all ended up in prison or... Or executed. Well, first they were they ran away because they they weren't going to back them. But it was it was known Jesus is you know Jesus had come into the to Jerusalem riding on a donkey to make fun of Pilate coming in on a war horse mm-hmm. and and the implications are incredibly political. But it's incredibly political because he is uh, he's challenging this it's a different unholy system. relationship between Rome the beast right. and uh, the 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 way of God. Now, another thing we often see, uh, unfortunately, and I'm not like it's just so it's just so refreshing because it happens all the time. But, but are the shady te- televangelists? Oh yeah, you they know, turn they their whole thing is making religion. Put your hand. I'm going to give you the anointing. <laughs> you send in, you know, so some it, money. All we'll it give is you a, is a business, really. It's but the problem. So so this is what we usually go to though, and mm-hmm. this is really important. Of course, that is that is worth you know tying some cords together and, and smashing up, but. Everybody knows, I think this is the problem, everybody knows that these shady televangelists are hustlers. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we fail to recognize that other religious celebrities, whether they're bishops, I'm not going to name names, but there are bishops and evangelical leaders that will often saddle up alongside politicians and allow them to get away with some of the, uh, the naughty things that they do, either in their personal lives or politically. And I think that that's more dangerous. And it's more dangerous because um, it, it, it carries with it a, a sort of uh, cultural legitimacy. You know, you have, you always have, you always have the, the charlatans. And the charlatans are always, you know, hanging out with the, uh, you know, the, the boxing promoters and the, and the Vegas tycoons or something. I, I get that. But it, what's really nefarious is when power is is cloaked over it's it's injustices are cloaked over by Christians especially who want a bit of that magic it's it's the it's the Constantinian shuffle we used to see that the church was subversive um, especially subversive of of power that would be exploitative and unjust then all of a sudden because we had this opportunity in the Christian world where where Christians could be important they could be at the table they could be hanging out 
in in the highest courts in the land. That was a deal that was pretty attractive, mm. and yet it was it was a poison pill that we swallowed in in the church, and we've been dealing with the repercussions of that ever since. You know, uh, unless you're a persecuted church, very often uh, you're a you're an impotent church because you don't realize how many ways in which you will find that cultural Christianity or Jesus as a mascot is what allows some of the greatest global wickedness to, to continue. Mm. And it's unfortunate. One last thing I, yeah, it's very unfortunate. One last thing that I'll, I'll bring up is that last part where it says Jesus knew the hearts of the people and didn't entrust himself to them. Yeah. And I think that's also why he didn't do the, the miracle, you know, in front of the religious leaders. Like he, he knew their hearts too. Right. And I, and I think that the important point to remember in this is that if you're within a group that does not have your best interest at heart, you can't trust them and don't, don't trust their religious authority over you. They might, you know, you've got to go to certain, uh, counseling or something from them. Right. But no, (laughs) you, you have the right to say, no, I'm not doing that. Find a different group. If they excommunicate you, then don't think that that means that that is anything to do with your ultimate, you know, salvation or whatever you want, you know, like, or, or whether you end up in heaven or hell, because that type of thing, when somebody wants to exercise a certain authority over you, but does not have your interest, your best interest, it'll never heart, work out. It won't work out. And it, and it will just allow for you to be opened up to perhaps further trauma or abuse or, or more corruption. They could wear the right religious uniform, have their name on the right denominations roster, they can have a big old cross that they're carrying around and or whatever the religion is, right? Mm-hmm. If 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 they've already demonstrated that they're not looking out for your best interest or the there's almost best nothing, interest of the people that they're in charge of. Right. Or uh, right, so it could be others. If you but if you start to sniff that out, if you start to see that a a religious leader or a church group or religious group is acting in such a way that they have subordinated the individual's well-being to that of the the mm-hmm. sustainable you know finances of the group, it'll never it'll never be trustworthy. It should never be trustworthy to you again. Well, we always at the end of each chapter have a, a, a set of questions that we offer, and then we really do hope that that part of the great process of going through this protect your noggin with Jesus study will be the questions, and that the stuff that we're yakking about is just to kind of get your uh, get your mind going on some of these things. But if you could read the chapter, listen to uh, the podcast, and then come together and just look at the questions, I think that would be ideal. That would and, be and, groovy. And we briefly mention aspects that are in the chapters, but yeah. they are, they get more thoroughly sort of uh, thought out and, and discussed uh, if you if you do actually get the lesson. And there's a, way more questions, too, that we ask that we don't cover. Yep. Multiple here. questions. You go to protectyournoggin.org to find out how you can get your hands on a physical copy or a digital copy of the text of the 12-chapter the study. So the question I'm going to mention today that we'll discuss is, if you're a member of a religious organization, who does your organization answer to or serve? Yeah. So, so that one of the things that I find interesting sometimes is when I, I so many times just been places that we've been in, in connected with. And it seems like the church has been there for the community itself that on, not the whole community, just the, the people that attend on the congregation, Sunday, the members. congregation. It's members. a club for them. It's a club for them. And you could join the club. They'd love you to join the club, especially if you're going to tithe. Right. And I just, I, I, for them. I find it always kind of frustrating that sometimes what, is missed in that opportunity. And, you know, so sometimes it'll be like that there's, you know, the Thanksgiving dinners and things like that. They're just a small little portion of maybe what they do. Right. But there's other things that are, it could be so much more in like their whole, the whole life of their church community. For instance, often when I've driven by schools, say I've noticed that there's a, some sort of religious community, you know, building of some kind and it could be connected to, there's multiple, like it's not any one denomination or You're saying like or at type. a public school. Public school, yep. So there near, could near be a the Catholic church. School, there right. could be, you know, it could be... Every denomination is involved in this. <laughs> yes. And Stacey's going to mention. There's often some sort of parking lot or whatever, and I see schools... I mean, I see that the, the church themselves will end up posting these signs, you know, 
do not, you know, no pick up or drop off here. With all you know, caps no, <laughs> underlined and no three exclamations. Under no circumstances may you use this parking lot right. for this, uh, you know, for Little League. And so it often ends up being that parents will even drop off their kids in riskier spots yeah. that are less safe for them to be dropped off so that they can honor the rules because it's obviously not allowed whatsoever to be in the church parking lot. And I'm thinking, what a missed opportunity for that church. Instead, like the message they're sending to the community, it's not even just that they're not, you know, offering that safe spot for drop off perhaps, but it's that we don't want you here. We don't want any of your our parking lot. This is our parking lot mm-hmm. and we don't want it to go towards any of these other things except for us and our usage. And and the parking lot, by the way, is empty. Yeah. It's not it's as a if, Tuesday morning. <laughs> yeah. It's not as if they've got, you know, all these meetings and things that happen there and that We've it's We've seen this in twenty five cities at least. There's it's just to me it's such a a missed opportunity. There's, you know, there's the other thing too with the big parking lot. Sometimes even it's a great place to open up for your community to do a movie night or something, you know, with the big, have it get a big screen or projector or something. For the community. But use something, you know, use it as a tool, an inviting place that welcomes people to come and be a part of it and not just only the people that are in this club can use this. And when you say this is ours, I wonder, is it really? (laughs) Is that what you think it is, right? Is it yours? And I, you know, there's. Listen, friends, you you and your uh, elder board can 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 hash this out, and maybe we're totally misunderstanding the the legal liability or whatever. But right? Uh, yeah, we're generally talking about when there are civic events, um, where I think there was one spot where a church a church was <laughs> there was a church that was negatively reviewed on Yelp because at this public event they were charging something like a couple bucks to use their restroom. So they were making uh, a bunch of money, and everybody was just dying. They had nowhere to go to the restroom. This is while we were on our trip. Yeah, and the church, and you know, maybe it's a fundraiser. I would say, you know what? Go ahead and have a little bucket out there that says, you know, thanks. You know, we, we're, we're glad to be able to have this service to have a public restrooms for this public event. Right. You want to keep, but maybe this put up. a tip here, and this tip will go towards helping feed. Uh, people in the, you know, or, or maybe the f- for the supplies to keep it going, or the supplies. Just, I wouldn't mind. People would be very happy to tip, <laughs> mm-hmm. but this idea that I'm going to charge you for the basic right to go pee pee, right. uh, and we're a church. Can you imagine the kind of goodwill they'd get in the community? Yeah, but no, no. And, and just, but we don't think of it because yeah. we just think that's our most of our lives. No one's going to take advantage of me, and no one's going to take advantage of well, my church. And you open it up to the public, and I get and guess what. They're going to go through more, more toilet paper. The and they'll be doing are drugs need, in there. They're going to need no. to get cleaned, you know. But perhaps even so? you have a religious leader there, you know, buy the bathrooms and, and, and offer Getting a chance. Get to know the community. Yeah, and offer you a chance. You can't get them into the doors. For a conversation or something, you know, it, it, with the people that are coming and going. And how are you? How was your day? You never know what kind of doors that would open up. We're not trying to get all judgy McJudgeville <laughs> no. on you here. But what we're trying to say is that even if we're wrong, that's the way most of the people we met when we were out in, in various cities around America, when we would see people outside of churches at, at various days, festival days or whatever, the the negativity that they experienced when they thought about what that church represented and who they were for, mm-hmm. they were for them. They weren't for them. In other words, the people who were walking through the street, they didn't feel like the church was on their side. Right. The church was on the church's side. And that... And you can clean up and get your act together and then maybe get welcomed in. <laughs> yeah, but, right. If you become somebody who doesn't you, need to pee. You really have to sign off on a whole lot of other things in order to actually be a <laughs> yeah. part of the, the community. But uh, but the idea is, again, the question that we're asking here with this specific question is, who are you serving? Mm-hmm. Who are you about? And Who are you answering to? If you're, yeah, but I mean, if you're if you're worried about serving yourself versus serving the community, that's... That's something to at least pause on for a second. Right. Now, the other, so that was Stacy's exercise, the question of, you know, where, where should we let parking, you know, occur? Um, I, I, I think uh, for me, you know, I've always been associated with uh, Christian liberal arts universities, church-related uh, Christian liberal arts universities. And one of the, the things that caused me for a while to be a little uncomfortable was the, just the reality that in some cases... Um, K through 12 and colleges in the church related traditions partly were there to be able to segregate that there was a way in which, okay, we'll let the public schools be integrated. This is America, uh, black and white, especially. Uh, But what we're going to do is we'll say, okay, the public schools can be integrated, but I'm still going to have my private Christian school. That's not going to talk about 
evolution. Later on, it's not going to talk about the environment or or uh, or, or LGBTQ issues. And so we're going to protect the kids from that. But we're basically really trying to make sure that our kids marry within the faith and essentially other like white kids that are like our white kids. Mm-hmm. And that really always, um, I think, well, that was a wake-up call for me as I was thinking about that. I think it was Josh Swamidas that we were rhapsodizing on, on just the why of Christian schools. Mm-hmm. What was what was stated was we need to keep kids educated in the faith, and that's probably true for, for many people that are actually involved in it. But what motivates it in terms of the money and the budget and the decisions historically sometimes was not all that ethical mm-hmm. in that sense. It was sometimes xenophobic. Yeah. Um, or, you know, it, let's put the best spin on it. It was to help Dutch kids have Dutch schools, German kids have German schools, Catholic kids not have to go to the waspy Protestant schools. And sometimes it would be a service to the community. We were, you know, part of a of a of a church that served the community, and it was still under the auspices of a church. So mm-hmm. it's totally possible. But what I was really happy about, you know, more recently, you know, at at my university where I am now, um, we, you know, we started as a, a small church related institution, but we've really expanded to trying to get uh, a, a broad student body. So some some church-related schools are going to say, we just want Christian kids. And I really like that where I am, it's a Christian university, and it's not bashful about being that, but it's it's saying, you don't have to be a Christian to come get what we have to offer. You don't just have to be rich. We're um, More recently, I was really happy to see that we became designated as a Hispanic-serving um, higher ed university or college, and that's important because we're in a very... Um, well, historically, we, we're in a very uh, un- non-diverse kind of set of colleges, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this was not historically where we were at. And uh, by by also extension, the, um, the, the serving Hispanic communities is, uh, is also often going to be Roman Catholic. And so having the ability to go outside of just being Protestant, mm-hmm. I think was, was pretty handy and, and it's, it's made it a nice rich conversation, but th- that's always a question. I'm not saying that well, we don't have other things to think about. And, as to the our point about and the point about rich conversation, I think that what is also important is that you, we'll, we live in the world, so we're going to be exposed to different ideas and, and thoughts. Right. And, right. and so it college is a great place to wrestle through all of this and that, if everybody already, you know, always sounds exactly the same, You're not and really, then yeah. they get out into the world and realize there's somebody else that says something a little different and they've never heard that before, they really yeah. don't know how to respond to it or the implications of some right. of these viewpoints and might think, oh, that sounds really good. Maybe I'll, you know, adopt this way without even being fully able to understand exactly what that you know, viewpoint entails mm-hmm. or whatever. So you want to be able to have a space to wrestle through various ideas and thoughts mm-hmm. so that it will help you when you go out into the world and how you want to interact with people and, and what views and, and beliefs that you have and why you have them, that they aren't just so easily, you know, brushed aside when you come up with all of a sudden something well, that kind of scary. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought about that before. And then their whole faith goes out the window because yeah. they really like, wow, like this, you know, I don't know what to do with this and they don't have anybody to help them through what that, what that is. If you're going to, a private church related school so that you could be sheltered or if you're sending your kids there or your grandkids there, it's uh, counterproductive. That's the, that's the unfortunate part. It just, it doesn't work. What do you want to do? I'm mm-hmm. telling you as, as watching this for a couple decades now, you know, sending people to sheltersville is not going to work. Going and giving somebody the opportunity to have robust conversations with people that you can trust. I think, mm-hmm. um, Always keeping your wits about you, you know. Trust is a is a is a weird thing these days or ever, right? But um, at the same time, I think you're wasting your money if you're there for shelter. As well as parents, you're wasting an opportunity to help your kids if you're not dealing with some of the difficult ideas or concepts or thoughts that they have. That here you have a chance to help them work through this stuff, uh, and in their teenage or young adult years. And then if you, you know, if you don't take advantage of that opportunity. They're going to do it without you, <laughs> right? And and it could be harder. So anyway, just a little little side note there. Well, this isn't an easy e- easy no. chapter in the sense that we don't like 
disruption. We like things to be smooth sailing. Mm-hmm. And what Jesus does is he unsmooths it. You know, it's a, it's a tricky business. And I think that the the point of this is that there are times when you do have to call out corruption and you do it boldly. You don't have to wait to look, you know, make sure that you have the authority to do this. <laughs> Nobody owns God. And so even though it might be difficult sometimes to go against people that seem to have more authority than you, when you notice the the corruption, it's it you need to call that out right away or else you're going to do it does more harm to the overall message or or the community in general. And you have that. You have that. You are empowered to do that. And and the ultimate goal obviously uh is to find peace upon peace. <laughs> Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much.